My name is Humble Gray, and I am a Mississippi farmer. Played poker with the boys last night. Hands of Omaha, which we prefer over Texas Hold'em. Prefer it, see, because everybody plays the latter. And if everybody plays it, well, that just smacks of communism. So it's Omaha for us. Pot limit, of course, because we're none of us wealthy. It was the usual assemblage. Along with myself, there was Lyle Roach, 25-year member of the Improved Order of Heptisophs, Lodge 23, Zeb Miller, owner and operator of Zeb's Barber Shop, my good friend Davis McClyde, and those two younger fellas, Lee Coleman, manager of the auto parts store off 315, and Hank Ballard, septic contractor. And let's not forget the joker in our deck, Mervyn Clay. Funny is a funny TV show, that's Mervyn, and quite the provocateur besides. Anyway, about an hour in, I'm stuck with a dry ace, and Mervyn, he's no better off, a blocker confounding his straight and his pockets cleared of change. So to distract from his plight, old Mervyn, he cooks up a puzzler, a real head-scratcher for one and all, and posits it so. Speaking of straight, says he, and don't I wish I had one. And here he paused for inevitable chuckles elicited by self-effacement. But speaking of straight, says Mervyn, it's clear that we at this table are of normal genitive proclivities. Or to say it plain, we like the ladies. And of course we nodded, heartily acknowledging that simple truth. But, says Mervyn, let me propose a scenario. An alien with a huge spaceship that can destroy the Earth. Like the Death Star, asks Hank. No, not like the Death Star, says Mervyn. Worse than the Death Star. But the Death Star can blow up a planet, says Hank. What could be worse than that? The Death Star in Return of the Jedi, says Lee. Because the Death Star in Jedi was even more powerful than the one in A New Hope. Why would it need to be more powerful, demands Hank. The first one could already destroy a planet. What does the second one do? Double destroy it? I don't know, says Lee. I had no hand in its construction. I mean, it's worse than any Star Wars rocket, says Mervyn. The most powerful spaceship in the universe. And it's parked right over the U.S. of A, ready to strike, okay? Now then, here's the premise. The head alien comes to you, and he says to you, he says, Listen, I'll call off the attack and leave Earth be, but only if you do something first. What's that, you ask? And the alien says, You have to commit sodomy with another man. Well, you never heard a half-dozen men reject a premise faster than we six. Wouldn't happen, says Zeb. Not a chance, scoffs Lyle. Sorry, Earth, says Hank. Now hold on, returns Mervyn. This is the whole planet we're talking about, and you haven't heard the entire deal. See, the alien says that to make the task less onerous, you get to choose the man you do it with. And I mean you get to pick any man you want. That's how powerful this advanced spaceman is. Can't we just call out the army and nuke the ship, asks Lyle? 
No, replies Mervyn. It can't be breached by neither nukes nor nothing. So how about it? For the fate of the world in our southern soil, with whom would you commit the act? Hmm, says Lyle, and he paused for what seemed like a full minute, having never, I'm sure, contemplated such a scenario. Not once, not in his entire life. Brett Favre, says he at last. Why him, asks Hank. Well, says Lyle, the gent's a fine son of the South, a good old Mississippi boy with 6,300 completions. What kind of completions you talking about, asks a a puckish Zeb. Football, dang it, replies Lyle. So you'd be his wide receiver, says Lee, to universal laughter. I was asked a gall darn question, and I answered it, snaps Lyle. And how about you, smart guy, says he. Who'd you be sinning with? Our young friend Lee was taken aback, for he, too, had never pondered such. I guess, says he at last, I guess, uh, I guess Die Hard? Wait a minute, says Mervyn. You mean Die Hard the movie character or Die Hard the fellow who played him? One or the other, I suppose, says Lee. Tough on the outside, but tender on the inside, or that's how he strikes me. I think he'd be gentle and considerate and probably no happier about the situation. Fair enough, says Mervyn. But you, Farmer Gray, now it's up to you, a stalwart fellow of the plow, to save the world. Who with? Now, you'd think I'd be flummoxed, but while the others were hemming and hawing, I'd formulated my own response and replied right quick. My own dear wife, Elspeth, says I. That's breaking the rules, and you know it, says Lyle. No such thing, says I. "'Tis an old device, a plot well-worn since Shakespeare was a journeyman. "'I run into this fallacy, and against all manly inclinations, "'I feel myself drawn, loins and all, to his manner and his mien. "'So then,' says I to the aberrant alien, "'it's him I choose. "'Now give us some privacy so as I can do that which will tear at the heart of baby Jesus.' Displaying just that much discretion, the alien leaves us to the deed, but warns us that he has a special machine that will register whether we have committed the act. But the moment the intergalactic interloper leaves the room, this man, for whom I yearn, throws off his disguise to reveal that he is indeed no gent at all, but Elspeth, my own beloved spouse. I assume the clothes and aspect of a male, says she, to save you the ignominy of unnatural relations. Perceiving subliminally that it was I and no sodomite, you experienced the magnetic pull of a heterosexual attraction. Now let us do that which the alien has commanded, but in the manner prescribed by God. And so we are intimate, husband and wife. And the alien, his machine registering vigorous carnality, jumps back in his spaceship and flies home, none the wiser that clever Elspeth foiled his perverted scheme. Well, says Mervyn, points off for convolution, but points at it for invention. And then he turned his attention to Davis McClyde. And what say you, friend Davis? With whom would you save the world? Good Lord, says Davis, I've never reflected on it, but anybody, anybody, replies Mervyn. Alive or dead, asks Davis. 
I reckon, says Mervyn, long as you tell the alien to bring him back to life, we're talking sodomy, not necrophilia. Well, in that case, and in only that case, I'm thinking, Elvis? And this brought nods all around. Another eminent Mississippian, a veritable demigod, in fact. A fine choice, says Mervyn. And you, Zeb, who would you or, interrupts Davis, if Elvis was unavailable, John Grisham, raised in South Haven, and such a fine writer, he'd no doubt be quite the raconteur, and a good story related by the master, that'd ameliorate the sting of an impure act. Okay, says Mervyn, interesting choice, but use them. Now, were he to ball, continues Davis, I wouldn't say no to Brent Beach, a Flowood boy who pitched in Yokohama, so you know he's well-traveled, and there's something in his eyes. You can just tell he'd be kind. Sure, says Mervyn. You done? Doesn't have to be a famous person, right? asks Davis. Well, says Mervyn, because, says Davis, if the fate of the earth truly hangs in the balance and the alien can't make good on the aforementioned options, I guess, gun to my head, I might see my way clear to giving Ike Tisdale over at the grain elevator a tumble. Ike Tisdale, says Mervyn, or that fellow who pumps gas over the county line, continues Davis. What's his name? Tuck? Yeah, Tuck something. Look, says Mervyn, you've pretty much fulfilled. Or Jack Reavers, says Davis, teacher shop over at the high school, a soft-spoken educator who guides his charges with a firm but gentle hand, an ABCdery who'd no doubt bring the same virtues to his lovemaking. Yeah, I know Jack, says Mervyn, and I don't think he'd... Or Caleb Hathaway at the post office, says Davis, fills in sometimes for that Naomi Sue, sorts the mail with magic fingers he does... Or Teddy Cross, the paper boy. Well, paper man, he's 18 and legal. Mows lawns, too, he and his pal Jeb Pollard, who might add to the list as well. And then there's first selectman Buzz Fleming, CPA Peter White, lineman Jed Earl, pipe fitter Roger Sestain, no pun intended, lumberman Dub Nelson, and on and on he went. When finally he'd run out of men he'd commit sodomy with to avoid world destruction, we returned to the game, but quieter this time. The silence broken, not by good-natured banter, but by intermittent declarations of raise, check, call, and fold. Maybe we were all just contemplating the fact that in our very midst was a gentleman who, in the event of alien invasion, would go all out and then some. Good neighbor Davis McClyde. Yes, sir. Well, now, folks, in a nation divided by vituperative concours, one thing I'm sure we can all agree on is this. Life begins at conception. I'm unaware of anyone in these United States who would impugn said thesis, for as any biological adept will testify, the moment of rendezvous between a peripatetic gamete and an abiding ovum confers personhood upon the ensuel. Personhood, I say, with all the legal rights to any freeborn American. But a cord cannot propitiate disquietude over a failure to enforce these rights on the federal, state, and local levels. Which is why, dear listeners, just last night, 
Your old farmer donned his inventor's hat, sitting down with pencil and fool's cap to design a revolutionary device that will safeguard the franchise of our womb-dwelling brethren. Now, in order to elucidate its purpose, I must employ vulgar onomastics. I would therefore beseech my female listeners to forego this broadcast. Your husbands must instead hearken unto my indelicate dissertation that they might be apprised of the apparatus in question and later explain its application to you in a manner appropriate for female ears. So, if you'll just leave the room while your hubby attends to my words, I'll hold on. Maybe I'll just pass the next few seconds. Oh, I don't know. Just pass the time thinking about the national anthem. Yes, sir. The star-spangled banner, and what an honor it is to stand when it's played. Quite an honor. Oh, say, can you see, by the dawn's early light, (laughs) I'm standing right now, even though it's just me singing. That's how proud I am. That's how proud. Now then, is the missus gone? Good. Then let's return to this gizmo of mine, because, gentlemen, it's a game-changer. See, the fact is, everybody talks about putting the kibash on voluntary termination of pregnancy, right? The medical abortion, a word that curls my tongue and a practice that will soon be extinct, thanks be to God for conservative judges. But what about involuntary terminations, purported accidents denominated as, to use the lingo, miscarriage? I read, see, that up to 75% of gals in the family way miscarry before they even know they're with child. And among those members of the fair sex who do know they're parturient, 10 to 15% miscarry. Well, gentlemen, the stats consternate this agrarian. Why? Because they attest to, that's right, you guessed it, inexpiable carelessness on the part of our ladies. Miscarriage is always the woman's fault, for it's her sacred duty to take every precaution against pregnancy loss, even in those first, to employ a term unfit for wifely consumption, even in those first post-coital moments when she only might be expecting. For not to do so, friends, makes these miscarrying misses guilty of no less than negligent homicide, a most appropriate charge given that, as we all agree, fertilization begets personhood and all the legal protections thereof, and applicable even to those who are pregnant but don't know it yet. So it is that Farmer Gray, advocate for the unborn, has invented the Abortatron, designed to recognize pregnancy loss even moments after the collision of egg and seed, sewn into the, forgive me, taint of a gal's underpanties. It's fitted with sensors that can divine expulsion of a blastula faster than you can say Jack Russell Terrier. Upon said detection, my brainchild will transmit a radio signal to the nearest police station, beckoning arrest of the erstwhile mama. The upshot? Our newly cautious gentlewomen will, 
post liaison, immediately take to bed, eschewing physical stress and its inherent dangers while chancing no activation of the loinward transmitter. And for just a few dollars more, you can purchase the deluxe version, which acts like a canine shock collar for the nether regions, i.e. it delivers an electrical correction should your darling prove recalcitrant and try to abandon her blanketed roost. Soon she'll apprehend her boundaries, remaining prone on the pallet and eluding both miscarriage and jail. Of course, I'm handier with engines and disc harrows than with highfalutin electronics, so it'll take a like-minded engineer working hand-in-hand with yours truly to realize this dream. But surely a plethora of, of competent technicians are just itching to expedite female accountability. And once Congress passes legislation mandating the installation of the abortatron in all American nandy pants, and said legislation is signed into law by our peerless commander-in-chief, Mr. Donald J. Trump, a grateful citizenry will sing the praises of your humble correspondent, who will, naturally, blush fetchingly at such unmitigated approbation. Yes, sir. Play me out, Zeke. (laughs) 